church has. We've studied this uh, concept of shepherding. We've been looking at Acts 20. We're going to be there the next couple of weeks. Paul's farewell discourse to the Ephesian elders. He's 20 miles south of Ephesus. They met him on his way to Jerusalem. It's a tearful farewell. Paul says, you will never see my face again as they exchanged deep affection for one another. But this morning I'm going to be reading verse 17 and following in Acts chapter 20. Last week we looked at how Paul looked back at how he ministered for three years at Ephesus with humility and tears and not shrinking back from declaring anything that was profitable for the believers at Ephesus. And today we're going to be looking at how Paul gives them a purpose statement and how that purpose statement is supported. So hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would take this word and make application to our lives as we look to you. Come, Holy Spirit. Uh, change us and motivate us, motivate us and compel us by the Spirit, I pray. Constrain us to be your people in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this passage underscores the incredible significance of being a child of God. When we talk about shepherding people, we talk, we're talking about nourishing their souls with the Word of God as we care for them individually, as we speak to them, whether you're a mom and dad, whether you're a community group leader, a pastor, an elder, anybody that has any position of authority, or really anybody that's been in the faith a few months should, be, should have their goal to say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so we shepherd with the word and as we're personally involved in their lives. And this pattern is clearly spelled out, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where it says this, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother caring for her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you or having deep affections for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, 
but our very lives as well because you become dear to us. So, so Paul says here, he says, you know, you, we share the apostolic message, we share the gospel, but we also shared with you our lives. So that, that's, that's shepherding. It's nourishing with the word and you share your lives with people. Uh, and then the, one of the goals of shepherding is to, to the, the primary calling, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we've said the last few weeks that love is the whole person movement to the beauty of the triune God with requisite emotions, chiefly joy, sometimes repentance, sometimes sorrow, but chiefly joy as you live out of a heart of gratitude. So significance, shepherding, importance. Understand that we're, we're stewards of the manifold grace of God. First Peter 4. So we take life seriously. Life is not just a cacophonic unfolding of nothingness. Life has purpose and dignity and, and reality and strength. So we're serious. So I, I want to give you a little paradigm, and then we're going to go to the text, a paradigm of, 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 of how we live with dignity and worth and calling. So, so four statements. Number one is, because all men and women and boys and girls are made in the image of God. They have intrinsic worth. They have intrinsic worth. A child is being knit together delicately in the mother's womb has intrinsic worth. You don't earn worth. You don't earn dignity. It is given to you because you're made in the image of God. That's an amazing concept. So in the creation narrative in Genesis, God makes the heavens and the earth, and he says, it is good. And then it says, and the Lord God said, let us make man in our image. And God made male and female, and God said this, it is very good. You have dignity because you're made in the image of God, and that means that you can think, you can communicate, it means that you understand right and wrong, it means that you can appreciate and embrace beauty and wonder and glory, it means that some of the most hardened, uncaring people toward the, toward the gospel can write beautiful sonnets or paint beautiful frescoes because they're made in the image of God. And so, so we have intrinsic dignity as image bearers. And number two, if you're a child of God, you've been called into fellowship with the, with the living God. For example, 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. It's not coming up. Can you bring it up? So I want you to see this verse. Okay. Well, it's not happening. Take my word for it. First Peter chapter 2 says, You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you did not receive mercy, now you have received mercy. God has not only made you in his image, but he's called you unto himself. Now the call of God is the summons from the king that intersects with the gospel that results in saving faith. So how are people savingly related to Christ? Well, first of all, it is a summons from the king 
God calls you to himself, but as he calls you, the gospel is preached or read or heard or sung or understood, and it results in saving faith. That's the call of God. God's called you unto himself. So, so my prayer this week has been, Lord, there'll be people in church today that may have been in church for a long time, and they kind of sort of get it, but they don't really get it. I pray that this week you would call them as the gospel is preached, and as the gospel is preached, that they would, they would understand that the only hope they have is that in the fullness of time, the eternal God became a man and died on the cross for our sin as our sin bearer. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through the work of Jesus on the cross. And may that be gloriously understood by them this week as the gospel is read or sung or preached, and as you call them, and it will lead to saving faith. That's the way it works. So, so if you're a child of God, he's called you. The king has summoned you by the gospel of grace. And you have saving faith. It is, it is a glorious thing. And then thirdly, not only are you a person of dignity, you're called, but you're gifted. You're a steward. First Peter, again, chapter 4 says this, as each one has received a special gift, employ it as being good stewards of the multicolored grace of God. Every person here has received a gift or gifts from the Lord to be used for the advancement of his kingdom. Every person here is gifted, dignified, dignity, called, gifted. And then, and then also I, I go to this verse where Paul says his purpose statement, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he talks about the course God has given him. He says this, but, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only... I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So, so Paul says there's a course. Not only am I called and gifted, there's a course. Every person here has their own individual course to run that God has given them. And you run it as a good steward of, of the grace of God. Paul uses the same imagery on his deathbed. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, a well-known passage, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So I finished my race. I'm getting ready to be martyred. It's over. It's done. He said earlier in his ministry, about 12 years before that, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, you know, everybody competes for the prize, but only one gets it. He says, I run in such a way as to win the prize. I discipline my body. I beat myself. Not literally, but I watch myself. So, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize, a race. So we've all got a race. We have dignity. We're called. We're gifted. We've got a race. Run your race. In such a fashion that God gets the honor. Now, there's a something called Britain's Got Talent, and there's a segment of it, or really three segments, that I occasionally watch. But one takes place the first year of Britain's Got Talent, 2007. And the background is, you know, they they have these judges sitting there, and they have an audience. This takes place in Wales. There's about 2,200 people or so, and. And so uh, they have these people come out, and some of them are just not very good, and some are okay, but some are really good. And, and so I heard about this segment. I've got to have watched it 15 times in the last four years. It's just it's very inspiring. 
So the, the, the judges are sitting there, and this guy comes out, and his name is Paul Potts, P-O-T-T-S. And uh, there he is. So Paul Potts, his background, his, his dad was a bu- is, a, is a bus driver. His mom was a grocery store cashier. No music talent in the background. Um, he took some voice lessons as a young man, sang in some school musicals. But then later in life, he's only in his mid to late 20s, he, he had some physical issues. He had a bike wreck that really destroyed him physically. And he just, just life is not going well. He's a, he's a they ask him, what do you do? Paul says, I'm a mobile home, a phone salesman. Mobile. He's British. You know, mobile home salesman. You see it in the advertisement in the paper, and they wrap their fish and chips in aluminum. Okay, so, you know, a mobile phone salesman. And so he, he walks out on the stage. He's got this, uh, he's kind of like me. He's never going to be asked to be on Gentleman's Quarterly. He's not great looking. And he's got this He's wearing this suit that's just kind of hanging on him. He did not fly to Milan to get it. He just bought it off the rack. And he kind of walks out. And as soon as he walks out, they show the crowd, and the crowd starts snickering. Who's this guy? And he shows the judges, and the judges kind of go, oh, man, here we go again. This is going to be a... And then they say, tell us who you are. My name is Paul Potts. How old are you? He tells us age. What do you do? I'm a mobile phone salesman. What are you going to do, Paul? He says, I'm going to sing Nessun Dorma by Puccini. And as soon as it says that, it shows the judges, and they roll their eyes at each other, and they say, oh, my soul. you got to be kidding me. And then they say, Paul, whenever you're, Paul, whenever you're ready. Sorry. Well, Paul, whenever you're ready. And so he nods, and they, they punch a, a tape deck. It's kind of like one of these old Baptist churches, you know, don't have an instrumentalist. They just punch a tape deck, and... So there's no orchestra. This is the very preliminary rounds. Later, they have orchestras that play the background. So they, it, 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 it starts. And Paul Potts, 15 seconds into this song by Puccini, has people on their feet applauding, women weeping. 30 seconds into his song, the judges are standing up applauding. It is absolutely magnificent. And I, I watched that, and I said, that is a metaphor for faith. Let me explain. You're Paul Potts. The judges are the world. The audience is the elect angels and those who've gone before us, a great cloud of witnesses. We go out on the stage, and the world rolls their eyes at us. I, I love 1 Corinthians, where Paul is writing to a group of people in a philosophically laden education center called Corinth. And, and these Corinthians who knew philosophy went around saying, we have Socrates, we have Plato, we have Aristotle, we have Euripides, we have Pythagoras. What are you, a cast-out Jew from a non-important people like the Jews going to tell us? And Paul says, we just preach Jesus. He said, Greeks demand philosophical arguments, but we just preach Christ. Jews demand miraculous signs, but we just preach Christ. It's a stumbling block to one and it's foolishness to the other. But to those who are being saved, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And the apostle says, look around. He says this tongue-in-cheek. God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the strong, the foolish things to confound the wise, that we may glory in Jesus. So we're Paul. We're Paul. And God says to us, sing, sing. You have dignity, you're called, you're gifted, you have a race to run. Now sing.
whether you're an educator or you're a homemaker or an auto mechanic or a neurosurgeon, sink. You've been given a course, run on it, sink. And that's what, that's what, that's what, what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Just, just, you have dignity. There's a little poem, limerick that's been around since 1300 that talks about the dignity of labor. That's the way I understand it. It goes like this, for, for, for want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For loss of a horse, a rider could not ride. For loss of a rider, a message was not delivered. For lack of a message, a battle was lost. For lack of a battle, a war was lost. Because the war was lost, the kingdom was lost. And you go back, it's all because a blacksmith did a terrible job putting a horseshoe on a horse. What you do counts. One of the greatest lies in the pit of hell is you're not important. You're important. There are people you can touch for Christ and ways that you'll live that no one else will ever touch those individuals for Christ the way you can. God places you in your neighborhoods. God places you in your dormitories, in your companies, wherever you are. God places you there in your marketplace to represent him. You have dignity. You're called. You're gifted. You've got a course. And so then we get to the text, and Paul says, I'm going to give you a purpose statement. He says, verse 24, my purpose statement, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish my course and complete the ministry the Lord God has given me of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul says, this is my course. This is where I'm running. This is how I'm living. This is who I am. And the way I look at it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's somewhat like having a bridge. And I'm going to give you three pylons like this bridge in France, three, three pylons that, that support the purpose statement. He says three things, I think, in this text that give support to his purpose statement. Okay. Number one, he says this. Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained or compelled or pushed by the Spirit. The English Standard Version capitalizes Spirit can be Paul's spirit or, or the Holy Spirit, but it has the same effect. Constrained by the Holy Spirit or the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me except that the Holy Spirit testifies. So, so point number one is Paul was a man who was compelled or constrained by the Holy Spirit, pushed by the Holy Spirit. That's pylon number one. He pushes us. He said, that, well, how, how are we compelled or constrained by the Holy Spirit? And here's my answer. We're compelled or constrained by the Holy Spirit as we're men and women who give ourselves to the study of Scripture. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says, you know, he said, the Jews who believed in him, if, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I ask myself, how, how do we be, how are we men and women who are pushed or compelled by the Holy Spirit? And the answer is we, we stay in Scripture. And so I ask myself, as, as I've read the Word, even this week, has there been, uh, as I've read Scripture, have I been constrained, constrained or compelled to make a life change because of the Word of God? See, the, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and makes it alive and living in my heart, our hearts as we study. Com compelled by the Holy Spirit. I was reading Galatians recently. Think about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. We know this passage. Most of us do. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I want those. I want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I want those things. And they come by the power of the Spirit as we glory in the goodness of, of the living God. But then I thought about the catalog of, of attitudes before that, which is found in verses 19 to 21. that says this now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. As I, as I meditated on these things, I thought, you know, every one of those sins is the result of me saying, God, you're not as good as you say you are. And I, I struggle with that. God, you're not as it's a fit of What is a fit of anger other than I'm not trusting the fatherly goodness of God to work through this situation? What is a, a, a spirit of dissension or jealousy other than I'm going to talk to this guy and kind of convince him that I'm better than that guy so we can have this triangulation of emotions and relationships and I can push this guy to the side and make myself look good. What is that other than saying, God, I don't, I don't think you're good enough to really see me through this relational swamp. And so, so, I, so I read this and being compelled or constrained by the Holy Spirit it is a fight or to press, or a hunger to see more of the Trinitarian glory of God. I was reviewing a hymn this week by a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux. He died in 1154, a long time ago. He had a, a hymn, it's just a beautiful hymn that goes like this. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. But sweeter still thy face to see and in thy bosom rest. I thought, wow. I said, Lord, Lord, let me taste your goodness. Not just read about it. But let me say with Bernard of old, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter still, thy face to see. I want to see your face, Lord. I want to know you. I go to Ephesians 1 and Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus, and let me just read it. He says, he says this, he says, I, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's a present tense, that you, you'd know him better. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling, and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance that is yours in Christ? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ? He says, so church, you know Jesus, you're in Jesus, you're, 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 you're grounded in him, but I pray you know him more and more and better and better. And so, so this, this being compelled by the Spirit is a fight to see the beauty and the glory and the joy of Christ. It's, it's kind of like, the way, the way I explain it, it's, it's kind of like, I'm going to a wedding. I love weddings. And I like to go to the wedding celebration afterwards because the food usually is very, very good. And so you go to this wedding, and then you go to the place where the reception is. And the bride and the groom are usually 30 or 45 minutes late because they're taking pictures. And, and you're standing there. And, they, and a lot of times they'll lock the doors to the main hall 
so the bride and groom could go there simultaneously with you. And so you're standing there making small talk with people you don't really know, you don't really want to know, but you're making small talk. And, and so as you stand there, if it's a nice wedding, people start walking around with these trays of hors d'oeuvres. And they'll stop in front of me and say, would you like an hors d'oeuvre, sir? Which is the ultimate silly question. I said, yes, I'll take three of these right now. And so I, I'll eat hors d'oeuvres. I'll eat, and after, after I've eaten, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20 hors d'oeuvres, um, sometimes at weddings and you eat an hors d'oeuvre and you're like, boom. And you go, that is good. That is good. I never thought shrimp with whole cream cheese with some marmalade on a cracker would taste good, but that is good. And so, and so you, if you think to yourself, if, if the hors d'oeuvres are that good, then you look inside, behind the locked doors are these tables of food. And you think, if the hors d'oeuvres are that good, what will that taste like? And you're thinking, bride and groom, get here fast. You know, really. So, so to me, that's kind of like the Christian faith. You, know, we, you taste, but there's more. There's more. And so you say, God, open my eyes to see the beauty of the Trinitarian glory of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me see you. Let me see obedience is the fight for joy. And let me just give you this little push. I was reading Proverbs this week. So I came across a, a passage that I've thought about a good bit, but just thought, yeah, this is Proverbs 11, 24, and 25 says this. There is one who withholds what is justly due, but it results only in want. And there is another who gives freely, but grows all the richer. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters himself will himself be watered. And I thought, God, let me be a generous man as a steward of my time, energy, and talents. Let me be a generous man. Let me understand he who waters others will himself be watered by the living God. If, if I withhold what's justly due, it's going to result in one. I'm, I'm not going to say. But so obedience is the fight for joy in the way I've used my possessions. See, that, that, that's why Jesus talked about money more than almost anything else. And so I would just say to you, Christ says, given it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken over into your laps. So if, when you give to the Lord, he blesses you with his presence, his anointing, sometimes with his financial blessing. It happens. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I, I just think I, I encourage you to understand the grace of stewardship and the importance of tithing. And then make that part of your first fruits commitment as you fight for the joy of obedience. I am fighting for your joy. Paul says, I'm going to stay with you guys in Philippi for your progress and your joy in the faith. I want to fight for your joy and understanding stewardship and your money and your time. If you're a, I met two couples this morning. One's getting married Saturday, the other three weeks from now. I just thought, more if, if our young couples could get started and understanding that, 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 that debt and more debt and more debt leads to nothing but sadness, and, and on the other hand, they can understand the biblical concept of stewardship that frees them, that put God to the test. God, will you really water those who care for other people? Will you really bless those who give instead of always receiving? Count me in. So, Mom says, fight for your joy. Fight to see the glory of Christ. That's the first pylon, being constrained or compelled by the Spirit. The second is this. Paul says, 
I'm, I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me tomorrow. Constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me when I go to Jerusalem. I, I just I read that and I thought, here's the second pylon. The second pylon is I can trust the goodness of my Heavenly Father. There's a catechism question, this sermon guide from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 27, the end of it says this. We believe all things, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly goodness. Question 28, how does this knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? This is just golden. We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence that our faithful God and Father, that nothing will separate us from His love and care. As we know God, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, but always realize nothing can separate us from the love of God. So I was thinking, one of the great church, listen to me, if you're, if you're a Christ follower, one of the greatest benefits of knowing the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the singular spiritual that says, His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He watches over me. I don't want to forfeit the joy of knowing that God, my Father, watches over me, and He cares for me. And so when I get up in the morning, I pray, Give me this day my daily bread. When lay down tonight, I quote the verse from Psalm 121, he gives sweet sleep to his beloved. God, you're in control. And that's, that's I'm not, in, in lean years, that's hard, but boy, it brings comfort. I, I just thought about things on the horizon or things that we're living through that take away our joy. I, I, th I thought about, I read this week, if you have a, I've saw these college students, they're down in the gym now, but I saw all these college students, and I read this week that, that marijuana usage on our college campus is higher than tobacco usage. Uh, so if you have a freshman college, take, take heart. You know, I'm just, I mean, really think about that. It's amazing to me. Uh, or, or I thought about the tumultuous stock market and how China seems to be sliding into the abyss and how's that going to impact us? And then how about the Eurozone and, and the default of maybe Greece and Spain and Ireland and Portugal? How's that going to impact us? And it seems to not portend good things for us in many ways. Then I thought about Russia and how Russia's being ruled by a guy who really is a thug. And he's got thugs around him. And they, they want to start taking parts of Europe back. What, 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 how are we going to respond to that? How about, the, how about these dear refugees streaming into Europe? I asked the staff, I said, what do we do about that? breaks my heart. Or how about Iran having nuclear weapons? Do you want the, the, the Ayatollahs to have nuclear weapons? I go on and on and on. And then really one thing that really keeps me up, will Deshaun Watson be healthy all year at Clemson University? You know, that really keeps me awake at night. But you, all these things, you know, when, I, when they hit me, I say, I, I'm, I pray and I say, but Father, you have them. You have aging parents. Father, you have them. 
You'll give me the grace to respond when I have to respond. And I, I just don't want to cash in my birthright. I want to hear the words of Jesus who says, seek first the kingdom of God. If people who don't know God run after clothing and material things, and they're worried about them all the time. Your Father in heaven knows you need them. Seek first the kingdom. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got plenty of worries of its own. You just, you just look to God. What a, Matthew 6, what a great passage. So the second pile on for Paul was, was that he doesn't know what's going to happen to him tomorrow, but he knows the God who holds his fate. The third pile on very quickly is that, this is going to be kind of strange, but, but afflictions await us. He says that I only know this, that the Holy Spirit tells me that every place I go, imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul says hard times are coming. So, so it's interesting. I've given something called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes magazine every month. It's a good magazine. It always highlights coaches or athletes who know Christ. And it's, it's, it's well done at the back of the magazine. There's two pages of eight different people, usually high school, college athletes, how they're serving the Lord, where they live, what they're doing, who the formative people have been in their lives, how they can you know Christ. And it says their favorite verse, their life verse. When I was first converted, we talked about having a life verse, and I chose Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. So that's kind of in my life verse. But it's your life verse, and four times out of five, maybe eight times out of ten. Thank you. I was going, come on, come on, come on, you can do this. Maybe 16 times out of 20. Anyway, so, so four times out of five, the life verse is, that's it, you got it. Uh, Philippians 4.13, it's a great verse. It's in the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Vibrant athletes, the prime of their life. I've never heard anybody say, my life verse is 2 Timothy 3.12. Those who desire to please Christ Jesus by living a godly life will be persecuted. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. My life verse is Matthew 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who went before you. Yes. But yet, church, persecutions will come. Hard times will come. People say, how are you doing? I usually respond, battles and blessings. That's life. Battles and blessings. But heaven awaits. Do not have eternity amnesia. There is an endless joy coming where the banquet of this life that you say, please don't let this great meal end, will never end. The warm embrace of a friend that you say, I don't want to lose this friendship, will never end. There will be endless, glorious ecstasy in the presence of the living God. And that's what Paul could say. A, a supporting pylon in my life is that afflictions are awaiting me. There's a man named Emile Curé or something like that at he was a French psychiatrist established in his thought pattern something called the Positive Affirmation, Self-Affirmation School in 1892. He was in Paris, and there's been a lot of spinoffs. But 
But he said something that his devotees are now saying through the years, and that is this, you get up in the morning and you say to yourself, in every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better. I saw a little video clip of a guy who's eighth, says, I'm 84, and he's written several books on this issue. And he says, I get up and I say to myself, every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better. And throughout the day, he says, better and better, better and better, better and better. He says, it changes your life. What a bunch of hooey. <laughs> I say, come on. And he, on this video, he says, I'm 84. He says, I'm getting better and better. I don't necessarily exercise at all, but I feel great physically. I don't eat the foods maybe I should eat, but I feel good physically. I'm, I'm getting better and better. I thought, really? I thought, about, well, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, the outward man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. Let's, let's, let's do this better and better test. Let me find a 27-year-old guy that does CrossFit five days a week. And he's a paleo diet and has 3% body fat. And let's put him in some swimwear next to you. Let's see who's better and better. You got a 55-year head start on being better and better with him. I mean, give me a break. Come on. Or, or Romans 7, Paul says, the good things I want to do, I do not always do. That is my experience. Some days I'm like this. Some days I'm like that. Some days I'm like this. But you know what? God is faithful. At the end of the day, God is faithful. It's not me. It's God. So if you get up in the morning saying, I'm getting better and better, just memorize some good verses. Don't, don't do this auto-suggestion hypnosis therapy. God is glorious. We have dignity. We've been called into fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You've been given a gift or gifts to use to His glory. And He says, here's your course. Run on it. Here's your sheet of music. Sing. Sing. Like Paul Potts. Sing. And let the angels, the cloud of witnesses rejoice as the world is confounded by a man or a woman who lives for the glory of God. That's the way you walk as a shepherd. That's why you care for people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Uh, we thank you for this, this incredibly emotive farewell address from Paul to the elders of Ephesus. We thank you that he served them for three years with humility and tears, and he didn't shrink from proclaiming the truth. And as he looks at the future, he says, he wants to finish strong, and that which helps him finish strong involves uh, understanding and, and glorying the fact that he's compelled by the Holy Spirit. Understanding, glorying the fact that, that, that heaven awaits. Understanding that afflictions are there, but, but afflictions or cancer are not the last word. The last word is the glory of the cross. Understanding that you are in charge and that you hold our today and our tomorrow. So Lord, don't let us forfeit the joy of saying, Abba, Father, hallowed be thy name. Don't let us forfeit the joy by being snowed under. But let us trust and walk in obedience. And as we walk in obedience, help us to fight for joy. We want to see and know you. 
and walk in your way. So we bless your name this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a great day.